you're listening to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. Sometimes when I look at the healthcare industry, I think, you know, this is, this is what banking looked like 20 years ago. 20 years ago. In May of 2021, Ireland's Health Service Executive, or HSE, the country's publicly funded healthcare system, suffered a major attack by the Conti Ransomware Group. The attack was the most significant to date on an Irish government agency and essentially froze HSE's IT systems. The outage lasted for four months, forcing health staff to revert to using pen and paper for record keeping. With 80% of HSE's IT environment encrypted by the Conti gang, healthcare delivery at HSE facilities was also affected during the crisis as well, according to an HSE report released after the event. While it's natural to think it could never happen here, a recent report by the Department of Health and Human Services in the U.S. concludes just the opposite. U.S. healthcare organizations should be very worried about an attack similar to one on Ireland's health service executive. The healthcare sector presents a particularly vexing challenge when it comes to cybersecurity. In addition to the high stakes and complex mission of healthcare organizations, hospitals, doctors' offices, and other healthcare facilities also maintain mountains of legacy hardware and software, some of it decades old. To understand more about the many challenges facing healthcare organizations, we sat down this week with Justine Bone, the CEO of the firm MedSec, which works with healthcare organizations to improve their cybersecurity and understand their cyber risk. In this conversation, Justine and I talk about the fast-changing landscape of medical device risk and security as more attention shifts to protecting medical devices and software supply chains. To start out, I asked Justine to tell us about her own journey to the information security space, one that started with an early and promising career as a ballerina. I'm Justine Bone, the CEO of MedSec. Justine, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. We haven't had you on before, so this is exciting. So you have a really interesting uh, path, kind of career path, as, of course, many people that we talk to, you know, in InfoSec of a certain vintage have a uh, really interesting path because, obviously, when you were starting out, there might not have been much of an InfoSec industry. But talk about your own background and how you found your way to to the cybersecurity field. Well, leading into cybersecurity, as we call it now, after that rebranding we went through from information security some years ago. <laughs> we uh, finally gave up. We, <laughs> we, we gave up on the fight you know, against cyber. Yes, we lost. <laughs> you know what? In my somewhat, living up to my somewhat contrarian you know, reputation, I was on team cybersecurity from the get-go. In fact, I think somewhere out there, there's a presentation of me asking folks in the, in the audience to raise their hand if they disliked the, the term cybersecurity. And I think most of the room <laughs> raised yes. their hand. And my argument was, let's start using it because people get it. Yes. And they, you know, and it just, for whatever reason, people identify with it, they get it, they just enjoy using that term so why don't we just run with it? And yes, we did. So, it, you know, despite the con- despite the sort of hesitancy, I think I might have I put a check mark next to that particular battle. <laughs> you were in the minority. You anyway. were definitely in the minority. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm used to that. Yeah, it's the story of my life. I think. Um, so yes. So my well, I tell you what, the career before this one, I was not in the minority. Um, that was the world of classical ballet, where I was very much the majority. Um, yeah, I and... just read that about you. I did not know that yeah. about you. Although 
having met you and you you have a ballerina's physique you're tall and you sort of walk like you I'm, i when i learned that i was like that makes a lot of sense but anyway yes tell us about that well thank you for that i just bought myself one of those exercise balls to sit on because i'm criticizing my own posture these days from too much slouching over <laughs> yeah it was it was a while ago but um it it laid a really interesting foundation for me through the rest of my career and that experience that I obtained during those years in the performing arts I don't know how I would have gotten through my career to date without it and I and I admire people around me who get up and present and articulate and go through highly stressful public facing times without that experience that I was fortunate enough to have early in my career in the performing arts. So, you know, walking into a boardroom, it's not an easy thing to do, right? It's sometimes it really does feel like a performance. And I'm lucky I've had a little bit of training in that once upon a time, so I can lean on that. But I, as I say, I really admire people who who um, figure that out without all that training. Also the discipline, right? I mean, ballerinas are kind of athletes, basically, uh, dancers generally, and um, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of practice and discipline, right? A lot of practice, a lot of, a lot of repetition, slightly unhinged. <laughs> You might, it's not, it's a, it's a strange career and I have to hope it's a little bit more healthy than it what certainly was yeah. all, that, all that time ago. Um, yeah. But as I say, it laid, it laid a foundation to allow me to ride through some pretty tough, stressful times to be sure. But it was a big departure, you know, and I, I, um, I very much remember the time I made the decision to, to, to go in a different direction. Um, it was a time of self-assessment if you will and looking to the future and thinking where do I want to land and you know that was I, I was then and I still am an ambitious person and I'll tell you where I wanted to land I wanted to land in New York City and I lived in a little country called New Zealand at the bottom of the world mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I came to the realization that classical ballet was unlikely to get me there um, so I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to retrain. And I had always enjoyed math, mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I had never had the opportunity to get my hands on a computer, um, but I nonetheless studied up on my math, talked to the university into allowing me to enroll despite leaving school, high school very young to study ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I found myself in a computer science 101 class as a minority you know, yeah. you know, or maybe there was a handful of, of us, you know, young women in the, in the room, but not yeah. many of us. And I think by the time I graduated, I was the only one, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it was a real about, you know, reversal and I loved it, right? I was moving to something that's very subjective to a science. I was moving to something that was interpreted and, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder to ones and zeros. Does it compile or does it not? You know, and that was just so refreshing yes. for me. Refreshing, so yeah. refreshing. Yeah. Just like I know how to win this game. Yeah. yeah. I just got to get the code to compile. Then I'm done. Working hard, studying, all the rest of it, that was fine. And 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 I, I really enjoyed it as a as a change and a different thing to think about. But I missed the humanity. I did. I I, I still miss the arts. And wherever I can, I, I I think I try to think a lot about how I can bring both those sides of, of mm-hmm. who I am 
together and you know fast forward to today working in healthcare I get a lot of that opportunity which is a, a great thing I'd say. yeah so tell us about MedSec it's your company you're focused as the name would suggest on medical device security and security within healthcare environments um, tell us uh, what is MedSec's kind of mission and uh, what, what do you do well we're all about developing solutions tools and technologies and services to keep our hospital clinical infrastructure as secure, safe, reliable as possible. Um, what does that mean, clinical infrastructure? Well, for the most part, it means medical devices. Medical devices are about one third of a hospital's endpoints. Uh, and we've got a whole host of security problems with those, with those medical devices. So we've got a lot of our work cut out for us, but um, we take a pretty holistic approach to this. So we, we at MedSec, work across the spectrum. We work with regulators, we work with medical device manufacturers as product is coming to market. Uh, these days, medical device manufacturers have to meet a lot of security criteria um, as it's regulated by the FDA in order to bring a product to market. Mm -hmm. So and that's a whole process and there's all varying degrees of maturity on the part of, of manufacturers from startups who haven't really thought about security to, you know, the age old situation where security is sort of thought <laughs> of at the last minute or maybe when it gets kicked back. Yes. <laughs> um, through to the, you know, the very large manufacturers who absolutely have their, their sort of arms wrapped around this problem these days and, and have huge programs, product security programs underway. And then these products get deployed into these clinical environments and inside these clinical environments inside our hospitals we've got brand new equipment um, generally in a pretty good place security wise mm -hmm. but more so uh, a lot of legacy equipment yeah these things these things sit out there for a long long time 10 yes. 15 20 years yeah um and so as you can imagine that comes with a host, host of security problems as well so really interesting time to be concentrated, focused on the healthcare industry and the healthcare field. Obviously, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and all of these institutions, as well as I'm guessing that the suppliers have been incredibly stressed by that. What have you seen um, from your perch on the impact that uh, COVID has had on these uh, institutions, at least from a kind of cyber risk standpoint? I mean, we know how it's affected them operationally, but in terms, you know, you're, you're really focused on cyber risk and cybersecurity. What have you seen? Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of a multifaceted situation. On the one hand, you've got healthcare delivery organizations, hospitals have always been, you know, 100% risk focused. Patient safety is always the number one priority, but it's, it's, it's yeah. more of a human approach yeah. Lives than on the line. a technology approach. Right. So um, when, when, up until very recently, when one thought about protecting patient safety inside of a hospital, um, one might think about the care, the type of therapy that's being delivered. One might think about the physical environment. But people, until very recently, haven't really thought about all the technology that's around the patient. You know, so that's kind of new thinking. That's a whole learning curve hospitals have to go through. But I, I tell you, with the pandemic, I think it's the first time in my career I've had to sort of allow cybersecurity to take a back seat, if you will. You know, for the first time I've had a customer say to me, I've got a bigger priority than cybersecurity. And you know what? I hear you. It's a pandemic. So that's that's been frustrating because at the same time as we've seen, um, unfortunately, the more nefarious amongst us security specialists, cyber criminals, if you will, have, have really seen Healthcare is a is a very lucrative, att attractive, easy, 
target and and at the same time as hospitals have been you know on their knees struggling to get through this pandemic we've had people going after them with these ransomware attacks and whatnot so sometimes when i look at the healthcare industry i think you know this is this is what banking looked like 20 years ago 20 years ago you know it's like we've had limited resourcing nobody has quite figured out how to tackle this problem a lot of people see it as a very technical problem you know we'll get our network get our network engineering people on that you know i remember seeing this a million years ago and that those days are long gone in other industries but there's a bit of that still out there um but a little bit of oh, what, what you don't know can't hurt you sort of a thing. Well, we, we've seen no evidence of anything happening, so therefore everything must be okay. You know, right, bit of right. But the, the pandemic, and unfortunately with all of this targeting, um, has really shed light on our on, the, on the, the weaknesses that we have in our infrastructure. And so now we're seeing conversations at a senior level. We're seeing, you know, people starting to sort of sit up and take note. And now we're going through that same path of how do we tackle this? How do we govern this? How do we communicate risk? How do our technologists communicate risk up to senior executives? You know, all of that that we've seen happen in other industries is happening now in healthcare. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I know, you know, back in the beginning of the pandemic, you had some ransomware groups who were kind of stating nobly that they wouldn't, you know, target healthcare providers or hospitals. And of course, you know, given that these are all thieves, um, you know, those promises certainly uh, were not adopted universally. And we have seen, as you pointed out, um, ransomware attacks on hospitals and healthcare facilities throughout the pandemic, um, often with you know, big impacts on caregiving, um, you know, going back to paper charts uh, in many cases because their their equipment is, is uh, frozen. Another um, interesting thing that's just coming out now, and I'm, I embrace this, is a little more reporting and transparency around the impact to healthcare delivery due to a cybersecurity event such as a ransomware incident. And we've had a surprisingly... <laughs> We've had a surprising lack of visibility into um, that impact until recently. And it's weird, but because of the pandemic, there's just, there's more reporting now. I actually think there's, there's a whole lot more data sharing going on now. Unfortunately, things like adverse events and deaths um, and, and just this reporting is also allowing us to see at the same time what the impact of these ransomware attacks have been. Now, what, what sort of frustrates me is that we start talking about ransomware attacks and we stop thinking about all the other types of cybersecurity incidents that can be going on. Again, just because we can't see it, just because we're not logging it or we haven't registered it in our SIM or, you know, our SOC's not calling us doesn't mean there's nothing going on. And that's sort of the next wave of what keeps me awake at night is us, us getting too focused on what, what's, what's loud and screaming in our face. Oh my gosh, the hospital's offline. It's gone turned back to paper-based processing because ransomware attack um, or of course the data breaches that must be disclosed that we, that we so therefore we know about but meanwhile what else is going on what do we not know about right right the, the sort of less uh, in your face uh, attacks or, or operations that, that might be focused on stealing data or information or, or or who knows what yeah or worse right um, kind of degrading capabilities or um, 
one thing that's interesting, and and you obviously over the over the years have have um, focused on issues around you know vulnerabilities in medical devices, but at MedSec you also um, focus. You know, your your customers are also the consumers of um, medical devices. I guess. Um, in terms of the risk right now, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist. We like to focus on the sort of outlier cases or the really interesting cases. So, you know, big gaping holes and, you know, um, infusion pumps and other really sensitive medical equipment. That's a great story. Is that really where most of the risk is right now in the healthcare sector, if the, your customers who are healthcare providers? Uh, or is it kind of the usual suspects, um, you know, phishing, um, you know, business email compromise, those types of things? These are all risks, uh, and, and we just need to make sure we're not overlooking certain certain areas of risk, right? And I think an interesting thing that's happening right now inside of healthcare institutions is there's a bit of siloed governance. So you've got your phishing campaigns and your traditional endpoint security management and your traditional IT security management, perhaps fairly well underway and well established. There may be a chief information security officer who's building out a team that's fairly typical now in a decent sized hospital probably reports into the CIO you know and you've got a program underway a huge risk obviously you know you've got sensitive patient records we've got nurses that need to be trained on how to protect that information all of that good stuff has to happen but you've over to the side under a completely separate organizational unit usually overseen by the chief medical officer you've got Biomed, who run all of the clinical infrastructure, like medical devices. And people are recognizing that these are basically just IoT devices that deliver, you know, therapy, but who's responsible for the security of this infrastructure? And so for me to tell you, well, this is, that's riskier than, you know, a phishing attack. Honestly, I don't know, because we haven't been assessing the risk properly yet. Most hospitals, unfortunately, don't even understand what that inventory is, what what's connected and what state is it in, let alone, you know, does that pose more risk than, you know, the risk of our fleet of printers being compromised or, you know, um, desktops and workstations being being hijacked. So it's, I don't think you, you, you can really point to one versus the other. What I will say is that, you know, the... the, the 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 air, you know, I, I will say though, you know, there's one set of equipment there that could probably really hurt a person, uh, and, and another set that yes could hurt a person by perhaps facilitating the the, the theft or loss of PHI, but um, the medication dosage is hopefully still going to be um, left unimpacted. So you just got you got this this different set of infrastructure with a different threat model, if you will. And what we need is a different, you know, security program to to protect it. And that's, that's what we're struggling with right now is what does that program look like? And how does that tie? How does that tie into the overarching, you know, risk strategy of the organization? So you've talked a lot about the sort of cultural differences within healthcare organizations and you know, just, I guess, the infosec field, you know, the information security, cybersecurity field, or more maybe kind of engineering-driven organizations. Um, talk about that. And obviously, they're, they're, as you said, these are mission-driven organizations, and the mission is keep people healthy, prevent them from getting sick or dying. 
Um, talk about how that where, where, where that clash or that tension exists within these organizations and kind of how it can impact like cyber readiness or mm-hmm. cyber resilience. I think one thing that, that played out, you know, a few years ago were, was, you know, okay, We've got all this infrastructure. We know how it works. All these devices. I've got IP addresses, and they all sit on a network. And maybe it's a big flat network, or maybe it's you know somewhat segmented. But you know, let's let's take what we know works um, best practice. Let's take our vulnerability management program methodology and and stick it over here in this hospital, and let's just tackle this right. But um, basic best practices inside of a an environment where your equipment can't physically hurt you. Um, are not so applicable to an environment where they can. So things like active scanning, port scanning, vulnerability scanning. Um, There has been a period of time where that's actually been seen as a no-no, if you will, inside of a hospital because we have so, yeah, exactly, we've got so much legacy equipment. A port scan is going to blue screen that XP box you know, which is sitting underneath the, the hood of that MRI machine. And, or, you know, and so, and so what happens then to the, what happens if that device is in use? And that's the other challenge is we don't really understand whether these devices are in use delivering therapy or not. So just basic fundamental patch management approaches that you, and vulnerability management approaches that, that work in other spaces aren't going to just roll over to these hospitals. And, the, the the reason why is because these devices are fragile, they're um, very complex and, and inconsistent, and they need to be available for use 24-7. So we can't, you know, we can't just think, oh, you know, the system needs to just reboot for an antivirus update or... You know, there's unexpected downtime for some some updates. No, these these emergency situations, these devices are very expensive and they need to be available all the time. And so, we can't just deploy these approaches that that might impact that availability. That would work in, say, a bank. Um, and that's that's why we've now seen you know the mid six of the world developing technologies that are specifically built for these. Yeah fragile environment so that we can sort of safely. Yeah, you, you must have become something of an expert in sort of geriatric operating systems and applications. Oh, well, no, I joke about it. Well, I know that my skills from yesteryear might still be applicable because I'm the hood of Windows NT. Yeah. And the last time I wrote a Stack Overflow exploit was Windows NT. So, you know, <laughs> maybe if I can if I can just jump in on that pen test or that, you know, deploying that med scan rollout of, of technical use with the team, but you know what, they don't let me anywhere near the code base so (laughs) (laughs) that's okay you you got a bit you got a bigger job um so uh so i mean one of the things that that's happening obviously in the healthcare sector as everywhere else is digital transformation so many of these organizations are have shifted from you know on-premises you know electronic health record or imaging uh applications and servers to cloud-based providers and not surprisingly, we've seen cyber criminals go after those uh, supply chain providers as well, because, you know, uh, kind of hack once, own many, you know, they get they get a huge uh, bang for their buck. Is that something that that MedSec uh, contends with or are you really more focused just on the what's on what's there physically and on the um, on the network within the facilities? I, I think we 
we're aware of this, certainly during the pandemic, you know, this rush also to, to roll out telehealth platforms and it's worrying. And we look at that and we do advise our customers on this. You know, it's sort of, um, we had a bit of a sort of a shadow IT at scale situation in the, in the early in the pandemic where physicians and, you know, clinics and people were just hurrying to do what they could to continue to deliver healthcare. And meanwhile, us sort of cybersecurity nerds are sitting back thinking, oh, no, you know, what kind of due diligence has that thing gone through? And what, are, you know, we're going to pay for this later, basically, was, was what we all knew. And that's true. Uh, what we do have going for us, you know, at the end of the day, this just comes down to program maturity, right? So how, how ready is a healthcare institution to implement things like vendor due diligence and, and you know, supply chain risk management capabilities and some are more, more ready than others. Um, but we do have HIPAA going for us. It's, you know, much as I love to hate HIPAA because it's so privacy focused and, you know, we've got all this whole patient safety off to the side that gets a bit neglected, in my opinion. Um, HIPAA does, just like PCI did back in the day for the financial sector, you know, it raises it raises the bar a little bit. And so the organization does have to think about the quality of the solution, how it's managing data. And at the end of the day, a lot of these healthcare institutions, in addition to delivering healthcare, are giant big data analysis centers of excellence, you know, with massive centralized repositories of, of electronic health records, you know, tightly integrated with every other system in the organization. If it's not integrated, it will be soon. And, you know, that's pretty scary when you think about that in terms of a lucrative target but all of that well, nearly all of that data is subject to some level of scrutiny with, with a regulation like HIPAA so there there is some level there is something that we can use as leverage there but then when you think about again the medical devices and then let's switch to delivering therapy and safety and security and where that's going to go with this you know new transformed newly transformed world and we've got you know remote medicine and the scenario of the of of healthcare delivery at home mm -hmm. that's, that's real-time monitoring you know constant yeah. monitoring yeah. and monitoring you know what i can be comfortable with monitoring okay we're monitoring we're collecting some data you could probably you know muck with that data but it's just sort of monitoring data but the delivery of care remotely is where i start to get pretty worried and we're just coming around the corner to start looking at that right now so we just got to rush to, to try to mature these programs as fast as we possibly can so that we're in a good place before that becomes mainstream right before medical devices at home becomes the norm yeah so the biden administration obviously issued a executive order on cybersecurity. part of that um it, it didn't really delve that specifically into medical um uh cyber security, uh but it did ask that uh, software providers who do business with the federal government implement uh, software bills of material um, and set some kind of deadlines around that. I know that's something that MedSec, you know, works with your customers on. What are, you, what are your thoughts on the whole software bill, bill of materials as a, not a silver bullet, but a part of a solution for these organizations? I mean, you just talked about all the legacy software and devices that are out there that they just don't even really know about. I'm I'm excited about the S bomb as we call it. Um, I think 
It's a, it's a, it's an ingredients list, right? So just like you're, you're going as a consumer to, to the supermarket and you want to understand, you know, are there additives in this thing? Is it, how's that, how does that fit with my risk profile, my risk tolerance, right? Um, you can also look at a technology and you can see potentially what's inside of this technology um, and, and make a risk-informed decision accordingly. And you know what I'll say is the healthcare industry was really early to embrace the software bill of materials, the SBOM, uh, initially calling it the CBOM, the Cyber Security Bill of Materials, but we got right in there. And this was driven in part by the FDA, the FDA who now require a software bill of materials from medical device manufacturers as part of a submission to bring bring new product to market. So this is, this is already right now be becoming the norm. It is the norm inside of medical device manufacturing. And this is good news, I think, for those of us who will use this information to make risk-informed decisions. It's not easy, though. It's, it's com really complicated. How do we use that information? And what about all the but what ifs? You know, what if there's, there's a library with a vulnerability, but what if it's a vulnerability that's not exploitable under these conditions, you know, under the way that this, this piece of technology has been configured? And so the, uh, the NTIA now, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, have, have tackled, are tackling this um, and trying to figure out the answers to some of these, like, really complicated questions. But generally, I think the, the SBOM's really good news. Uh, and and I'm I'm in full support of the of the idea. Great. Okay. Final question. Um, so, if we've got listeners who work at healthcare organizations, which I know for a fact we do, what should they know about their cyber risk, and what would your advice to them be? It's 2022. It's a new year to kind of level up uh, their level of uh, cybersecurity and and protection against uh, the threats that are out there. At a high level, I'd say these threats go beyond above and beyond data protection. And so we need mm -hmm. to start thinking about, you know, our mission, the protection of patient safety and how that could be impacted with um, unreliable or insecure technology. Uh, depending on that technology, you know, there's a whole host of scenarios here and there's a whole host of, of mitigation strategies accordingly. But step one, get outside of the HIPAA privacy box and start thinking about other types of impacts to organizations. Um, and, and then I would say, let's take that to the next level. Let's think about what we're not seeing. You know, what, when, we, when we think about regulatory driven disclosures, right? Data breaches. Okay, that's the outcome. A data breach, you know, is in a, in a, in a, a dumping of data or a threatened to dump data somewhere, or is is the outcome of a cybersecurity incident. A ransomware attack is the outcome of some prior cybersecurity breach that happened. What if there's no highly visible outcome, right? And there's actors out there who may be motivated to work in this way, just because we're not seeing it does not mean that there is not a, a you know, significant area of exposure here. And we don't want to wait to see that kind of an outcome. We do not before we do something. And unfortunately, we have a track history in this industry of waiting to see that outcome before we take action. I just really hope that we don't in this case. So you got bigger, bigger exposures to worry about than PII and, and bigger threats to worry about than ransomware. Yeah, I, I, w I would argue. And so that brings us to well, how do we how do we 
drive these security programs? How do we drive maturity, right? And I tell you what, when I'm done, when I when I when my mission is accomplished in this space, it's a long way from now. <laughs> it's when it's when a consumer will make a decision based upon the assessment they have been able to make about exposure. So we'll talk about the SBOM, being able to be informed to understand what technology is inside of, of a system before it's used. Um, what kind of a what kind of trust can we have in the technology delivering our healthcare? That's when I'm done. When people are empowered to make those kinds of decisions, we are such a long way from that right now. Right now, I think what we can do to improve maturity is to think about the other big driver which is policy and regulation. So what can we do beyond HIPAA? I'm not, I'm not saying HIPAA's got no place at all. Please don't get me wrong. Uh, what can we do beyond that? And we've, you know, we've got some thoughts. Uh, Health and Human Services is the regulator in this case for, the, for this problem. You know, follow the money is one school of thought. You've got sort of reimburse, you've got reimbursement <clears throat> programs in the United States that will reward hospitals for investing in what they call the environment of care. So a hospital has to show a strong, secure environment of care and have to be certified in order to receive reimbursements for Medicare and Medicaid. That environment of care, guess what it is? It's physical security it's hazard safety, it's fire resilience, it's tr appropriate treatment of chemicals. It does not include technology. So there's an opportunity out there to just f accept that healthcare delivery is so dependent upon technology at this point that we need to think about this risk and this use of technology is as, as, as something meshed into the entire way that we operate. And this goes right back to security is not just a technical problem, right? This is this is a risk management tolerance and culture and strategy that, that has to override everything that an organization does. That's what that's where we need to get to. That's where I think the, the regulatory landscape needs to get to. And that's that's really how we're gonna drive maturity right now in healthcare. Look, we've got a really long way to go, but I'm very grateful that we're talking about this. Let's just try to keep it real. You know, hospitals are going through a really hard time. This is not, you know, an industry flush with cash. <laughs> we've got to figure out how to do this in a realistic way that scales. Every one of us can identify with healthcare. We need it, every one of us. Not so much, you know, a hedge fund or a financial institution making their bajillions. Okay, that's great and all, but when I get when I drive past the hospital that my children were born in and I think they're improving their cybersecurity, that place is getting safer right now. That is meaningful. That means something to my children who I, you know, I remind them of this every day. This is what mommy does. <laughs> it's your hospital making it safer. They get it. Everybody gets it. Yeah. And it's, um, that's one of the exciting things about working in healthcare. Justine Bowen, MedTech, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was great speaking to you. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. And we'll do it again. Awesome. Justine Bone is the CEO of the firm MedSec. She was here to talk to us about cyber threats to healthcare organizations. Yeah.